It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. On the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hi, I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today on the show, the softer side of primates, some encouraging news about human and animal nature. In part one, the kids are all right and so are the chimps. Psychologist Felix Varnikin looks for and finds signs of innate altruism in children and chimpanzees. In part two, the Baboon Benevolence Society. Neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky brings us one of the most uplifting baboon stories you're ever likely to hear. I don't actually like baboons all that much. Oh, yes, he does. Just stay tuned, and you'll see what I mean. All right, part one of our show today, a conversation with the developmental psychologist Felix Varnikin. He works at the famed Laboratory for Developmental Studies at Harvard University, where researchers investigate the minds of infants and young children. He's looking for the roots of human morality, and he's done a series of interesting experiments with young kids and also chimpanzees, and this may surprise you parents out there, that seem to show they have some deep-seated tendencies toward generous and helpful behavior, particularly a desire to assist others in need, even when there's no evident payback. I watched some videos of the experiments on the web, and then I got in touch with Felix Varnikin by phone. Felix, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for um, contacting me. You know, I've been watching some um, some videos of your experiments with young children. Yeah. And I've learned a couple of things. Uh, one is that you're quite tall, and the other is that you're quite clumsy. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, it is true. I can't change my... Height, which is six six indeed, but I'm not always as clumsy. But I have to be a little bit careful when I do the testing. It's true. Why don't you explain for our listeners what I mean when I say you're clumsy? Explain explain these uh, experiments. Yeah. So um, what I've been doing over the last couple of years was investigating to what extent young children are already helpful, and the way I approached that was to create situations in which a person is performing an action, such as hanging towels on a clothesline. And then accidentally a problem occurs, like I drop a clothespin on the floor and I'm unsuccessfully reaching for it. And so these are quasi-natural situations that we uh, created in uh, our psychology lab and wanted to see to what extent children are, first of all, able to understand that this other person is having a problem and whether they, in addition, are motivated to help the other. So what we see in these videos is you, the experimenter, dropping things, uh, unable to pile things on top of each other, unable to open a cabinet. And uh, in every instance I've seen, a little toddler, um, how old? They are 18 months. Okay, so a year and a half old. A little toddler just stands up or crawls forward and, and helps you without any prompting. That's right, yeah. That was the, the interest that we had to see to what extent they would do that spontaneously, meaning... Do they do that without prompting, without being praised, without being rewarded? And the interesting finding is that they do that spontaneously, and they do it in these variety of situations that you described. So you're reaching for something, and the child comes forward and grabs it for you and hands it to you, or you're, you're bumping into a cabinet, 
and a child walks forward and, and opens the cabinet doors for you and, and so on and so forth. Um, you don't really say anything to them, but you're making sounds yourself like you're frustrated or surprised, uh, you know, struggling, so that they can sort of get the impression that you're having trouble and, and that they can assist you. Exactly. So this accident is always marked uh, like whoops or something and the person going after the object. So um, that is also important because we always try to um, contrast these situations with other situations in which the children in principle could do the same thing. They could um, decide to give an object to the person or they could open the cabinet doors or they could stack book on top of each other. So we want to see if children would just do that for the sake of it, or they're doing it has something to do with the other person's problem, right? So um, in other terms, we want to see whether children's uh, behaviors are actually influenced by the other person's problem. And the finding is that it is. So the children do not just randomly open doors when their attention is drawn to it, or they're not just picking up clothespins from the floor to initiate a social interaction with this tall adult, but they do it when the other person needs their help. And there's nothing in it for them, apparently? They don't get any rewards, uh, no encouragement? So they um, do not get an external reward. They must get some kick out of it to some sense, in some sense, right? I mean, otherwise they wouldn't do that. I mean, any behavior has to be rewarded to some extent, at least internally. But they don't get uh, something out of it uh, externally. The interesting finding from one of our studies is that children who have this uh, motivation to help actually are less likely to help in future situations when they, at some point during the experiment, received an external reward. So namely, we had one group of children who helped repeatedly, and every time they helped, they received a reward for the, from the experimenter. And there was another group of children who also helped, but we never gave them a reward for that. And then we compared whether children from these two groups, obviously always tested, tested individually, would help spontaneously in a future situation in which no external rewards were provided. And so in this case, the children who had been rewarded for picking up stuff that another person dropped were then less likely to do that spontaneously when this person again dropped objects on the ground in comparison to children who had never received a reward. In other words, um, in one group, generosity was seemingly its own reward. In another group, they got a payoff. And when they got the payoff, in future cases, they were less likely to do anything without the payoff. So, so in a sense, payment uh, corrupted them. <laughs> That's exactly right. So it, it turned the plane to work in some sense. And, and then um, when this external reward was no longer forthcoming, um, they had no reason to interact with it. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is what we really would hope from our fellow human beings, that, that we're naturally inclined to help each other and be nice to each other. Um, why is this surprising? In, in what way is this surprising? It depends a little bit in, on the, the stance you take on the origins of these behaviors. And so several models from social psychology, evolutionary theory, behavioral economics, uh, for example, make the claim that these altruistic tendencies that we see in adult humans are due mainly or exclusively to our socialization. 
So we start out as looking out for ourselves, being um, mainly selfish and not caring so much about others. But then we are trained over many, many years um, to adopt the norms of our culture and are rewarded for helping and, and so forth. And then over time, in addition to all these selfish motivations that we have at the beginning, um, these altruistic motivations develop um, as well. Mm-hmm. And so for models like that, this is kind of surprising that very young children who have not yet gone through a long socialization process already display these behaviors. Obviously, they have strong selfish motivations as well, but it shows that maybe some of these altruistic inclinations are not due to socialization and culture alone, but there's already some predisposition to develop these behaviors spontaneously. Now, now the kids you're working with, as you said, uh, in these experiments are a year and a half old. Now, how can you rule out socialization, that is, you know, training, uh, encouragement from adults, when they've had a full year and a half to be uh, exposed to uh, people interacting, maybe to to get praise, uh, you know, for doing things that are nice. I mean, how can you rule out that that cultural aspect? Right. I mean, I don't want to rule it out completely, Mm -hmm. but, but, but the claim is more that it's working in concert with some biological predisposition, and it's not the case that like biology gives us selfishness, and then all the altruistic tendencies come from from culture. So that's more the the, the claim there. So I think that they they probably pick up something from their culture, but not because they are purely selfish beings at the beginning, but because they also have these um, inclinations to to act on behalf of others. That is not only expressed in these what we call instrumental helping situations, but also by um, comforting behaviors or informing others of things that they don't know and so forth. So there are other demonstrations beyond our experiments that indicate that children by 18 months, but actually also already a little bit earlier, uh, display these uh, behaviors. Mm. So, so, so that's the, the viewpoint. But still, ruling it out completely is, is difficult, um, but we can rule out certain types of socialization practices. So for a, a one-year-old, it's just not plausible to assume that they have already internalized the normative system of their culture, right? So this this cannot be um, that cannot be the only source of these uh, behaviors. But in any case, in addition to testing these young children, we tested uh, chimpanzees as one of our closest evolutionary relatives, and. The socialization practices and teaching of norms, etc., just does not happen in the chimpanzee social group. So chimpanzee mothers are not rewarding their children for being nice to others. Well, are, are, are the young chimps or, or the young kids, as I said earlier, are they witnessing, uh, you know, altruistic or generous or cooperative behavior on the part of adults and simply internalizing it that way? That is true, but they also see a lot of selfish behavior. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Good <laughs> so, point. <laughs> so it is true that they see a lot of these things, but the, the question is what do they select and do themselves? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And another thing is also um, that we create several situations that are novel to the children. So imitative learning in a very simple form, like I just do what I see other people do around me, in, in a copying style, does not really apply to these situations that we create. It's a stranger who's interacting with them. 
it's sometimes a novel situation. So, for example, we have a task in which children are shown how to open a novel box, which has a hole on top and a flap on the side. And then the experimenter, who has not um, been around when the child was introduced to the box, um, drops a spoon through the hole into the box and then performs this dull strategy to try to squeeze his hand through this tiny hole on top and, and is ignorant of this flap, right? And so the children do not do, perform that behavior. They don't follow in the wrong means to uh, get this spoon out, out of the box, but they use the flap, open the flap, and give the spoon <laughs> to the experimenter. So this is a behavior, at least a specific behavior, that they could not have potentially seen before. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I've seen that video also. You, again, the experimenter, um, playing the dummy in this in this little uh, storyline, um, are trying to reach through a slot in this box that's way too small for your hand, and the child steps forward and opens this flap on the side, uh, which is much more accessible, and, and gets the object, the spoon that you're reaching for, and hands it to you. So they, they get to be the smart one in this scenario. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's very fun to watch. Um, and you say that you've done uh, experiments on chimpanzees um, that let them play the role of helper. That's right. So that was actually the, the even more surprising finding to us because there has been the claim that these altruistic tendencies are unique to humans and there also have been some experimental demonstrations um, of purely selfish behavior in, in, in chimpanzees. And so what we did was we simply adapted these tasks that we had developed for children and tested originally three nursery-reared or human-reared chimpanzees in a zoo in Leipzig in Germany. And um, so the surprising finding was that when their caregiver, a human caregiver, was doing the same things like dropping an object on the ground and unsuccessfully reaching for it, they would also help. And they would do that without getting a reward or without getting punished for not doing it. <laughs> and so this was the first demonstration um, or I should say the first experimental demonstration of these behaviors uh, in, in chimpanzees. And, and we went on to, this has been replicated now with larger samples and um, also chimpanzees helping other chimpanzees uh, without getting anything out of it in, in, in this way, which indicates that this a tendency to be helpful towards others is not human unique and is shared with one of our closest evolutionary relatives. And again, uh, your website is full of nice videos, and, and some of them show these, these chimps doing these kinds of things. For instance, a uh, researcher dropping an object and struggling to reach it, the chimp spontaneously coming forward, picking up the object and, and basically handing it to the researcher. And one that uh, really impressed me, uh, the researcher is trying to reach into a box and get to an object and is blocked by this clear plastic panel and the chimp comes forward and figures out that he or she can slide the panel out of the way and let the researcher get to the object. Very helpful and kind of in ingenious. Yeah. I mean, there's one study that um, was um, done in, in Africa with uh, chimpanzees who live in a larger group, um, and we set up a situation in which one chimpanzee could help uh, another chimpanzee. So, namely, the situation was that there was one chimp in a room with a sliding door, and he or she was trying to open the sliding door because in the other room there was a little piece of food for, for the recipient. And 
The problem was that the recipient could not open the sliding door completely because it was blocked by a chain. And this chain was hooked up in the room where we put another chimpanzee. So the recipient chimpanzee depended upon the help from the subject chimpanzee. And we found that uh, the subject chimpanzees would actually release the hook so that the chain would drop and the recipient could open the sliding door, walk through it into this other room, and get a piece of food. Mm. And I, I want to add also that for, for those who are skeptical or, or questioning the results with the kids, saying, oh, well, they're a year and a half old, they've, they've probably had plenty of time to learn uh, what good behavior is, uh, there are experiments with, with much younger kids um, who maybe are too young to participate in these helping experiments but, uh, or, or these helping situations, but who nonetheless... Um, uh, seem to discriminate between helpful and uh, and unhelpful behavior on the part of like puppets and other characters that are presented to them. Uh, we've talked about this on this show with with Paul Bloom of Yale University uh, and experiments showing very young infants actually um, uh, rewarding the, say helpful puppets in in these stories or uh, punishing the unhelpful puppets. So they seem to uh, if not help themselves, they seem to to certainly favor. Uh, helpful and uh, magnanimous behavior. Yeah, that's right. So, so it seems like this ability both to act um, upon the behalf of others and being able to uh, evaluate the social world along these dimensions is something that very young children are able to do. Who, who would you rather have helping you, a young child or, or a chimpanzee? Who's better? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the, these infants are... Uh, a bit more predictable, and there's not um, the risk involved that at some point when they feel like it, they can just twist your arm around. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You hear a lot of scary stories about chimpanzees these days, um, uh, chimpanzee attacks. But um, uh, are they are they otherwise more or less equal in in terms of generosity and, and altruism, or are there some differences? Right. So that's a very important point. Um, what becomes apparent from the recent studies with children and also chimpanzees is that there are a variety of altruistic behaviors that different species might or might not engage in. So we talk mainly about this instrumental helping where I help you with your goal of getting an object, etc. And in this case, um, very young children help, and we have also some indication that uh, chimpanzees do that. However, when it comes to other types of altruistic behaviors like sharing food or other resources, there seems to be a major difference. So children are willing to do that. Um, there seems to be a pro progression over uh, development to, to be more and more generous and care about fairness and, and so forth. But that is not paralleled in chimpanzees. So, so the several studies that involved chimpanzees um, giving up a resource or delivering food to another uh, chimpanzees have been failures and um, indicate that chimpanzees are not so willing to act altruistically if this involves uh, food. And I guess you've done experiments or, or others have done experiments that test uh, uh, willingness to share information, not just sort of physical objects like food. So, so this is another example where um, infants starting at uh, 12 months of age, when they're just starting to, to um, produce these gestures like pointing, 
um, will point out information for others. So, so one situation is, for example, that uh, someone is using a certain object, is always using a stapler to, uh, um, to staple papers, um, and then um, disappears for, for a little bit from the, from the scene, and some evil experimenter comes in and puts the stapler and some other object away. And when the first experimenter comes back into the room ready to continue to, to staple papers, he's looking around and can't find the object. And in this case, uh, children preferentially point to the object that the person is looking for over the object that um, is irrelevant for his or her actions. So this indicates that they are pointing out that information helpfully towards others, not in order to get the stapler themselves, etc., what would be called an imperative point, like do this or give me that, but in order to help the other. Now, now level with me. Um, when you started doing these experiments, um, testing whether indeed human beings uh, apparently are, are born moral or, or at least uh, develop moral impulses very early, were you hoping for that result? I mean, were you hoping to find out that your fellow human beings are, are innately um, decent? <laughs> um, obviously, as a scientist, you always try to be uh, open uh, to that, um, uh, to both possibilities. Um, no, we actually, our expectation was that chimpanzees would not be helpful, because that would explain a lot. If we can say that all the many differences that we see between humans and uh, chimpanzees might be due to us not only caring about ourselves, but also uh, caring about our, our fellow human uh, beings, right? So, so um, I think life would be easier if this were the case in, in, with regard to having a, a clear-cut theoretical model <laughs> uh -huh. about what's going on. So this actually complicated things uh, uh, quite a bit. Oh, now you're talking about chimps, but with kids, I, I imagine uh, it would have been quite disappointing to find out that they're little monsters. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite good that they're, um, that they're nice, and that also meant that after the experiment, we didn't have to clean up everything ourselves because the children had done part of it. <laughs> um, so how did learning that, that, that chimps, at least in part, share some of these basic generous tendencies, these, these altruistic tendencies, how does that complicate p your picture as a, um, as a developmental psychologist? Well, it, it does not complicate the picture about uh, child development, but mm -hmm. it complicates the picture about what are the, the differences between uh, humans and, and, and other um, animals, especially uh, uh, other primates. So with, uh, with the children, uh, I mean, both um, there are predictions in both directions. Some people claiming that we, we are selfish and these altruistic tendencies are due to cultural um, uh, factors alone, but there are other people who, who claim that, um, especially shown in these instances of comforting behaviors, we have already some indication of, of children being, being uh, helpful uh, early on. Hmm. Now, now, among uh, non-human primates, it seems to me that bonobos are getting all the good press lately, and, and not chimpanzees. Bonobos are the peacemakers and the cuddly, friendly, you know, apes. Um, have these experiments been done with them, and, and are they even more generous than, than chimpanzees? So the, the specific experiments, not yet, but it's, uh, it's on, on its way. So <laughs> especially uh, Brian Hare and his students um, at Duke University who have um, access to a bonobo site in Africa are doing a lot of uh, studies in, in this regard. And what has already uh, come out is with regard to a sharing of food 
bonobos seem to be much more tolerant um, than uh, chimpanzees. So whereas chimpanzees usually compete over food, um, bonobos are much more willing to let other individuals have some of the food. And sometimes they will even actively open a door to let another bonobo come in when they have a pile of food in front of them. So, so it fits the stereotype uh, of bonobos. It does. It does. <laughs> um, now, now, at a note of skepticism here, um, is this all the things we've been talking about so far, this, this helpful behavior, this occasional sharing behavior in humans and sometimes in non-human primates, um, is this real altruism? Is this real selflessness? Or is there some hidden payoff in all of this? I mean, are, are we, uh, and by we I mean the, the apes and the humans saying, you know, um, I'll scratch your back, but um, I know you're going to scratch mine sooner or later. Right. So I don't think that anybody would do that consciously, um, but it's certainly a, a possibility that um, at least over the long run, there is some some positive payoff for for this individual, and so these these models, what you refer to, is also called reciprocal altruism, are all based upon the assumption that on the first move of a social exchange, we will be cooperative, because only if in the first move someone is cooperative, then can this chain of reciprocal favors uh, start. Mm-hmm. Obviously, right? Right. right. So so um, it seems like to have this predisposition to, to be cooperative or helpful or whatever um, as a first move at the beginning is uh, really important to get the thing going. And so it is possible that we have this inclination to do that. Obviously, we have to pay attention with whom we are interacting, because not in all cases will these favors be reciprocated. So, so it is important that in addition to having this inclination to be uh, helpful towards other, there has to be a safety mechanism to not be helpful to everyone, mm. but also take into account whether these other people will sc- screw on over in the future or will be nice, uh, mm-hmm. etc. So um, in this sense, I, I, I think it is totally plausible that this is an uh, indication of reciprocal altruism, that it, this will ult- ultimately be a, com- a component of a mature uh, reciprocal altruistic uh, 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 behavior. So, so a quid pro quo sooner or later. Yeah, that's right. And but the question is now always thinking in terms of the development of, of children or like development of a human individual. Um, the question is, yes, we ha- we we know that adults engage in this reciprocal altruistic behavior. Um, and it has several components to it. As I, like I said, you have to be helpful towards others, you, and you also at least has to distinguish between individuals who will be reciprocators and who will not be reciprocators, etc. So there are different components that you have to have in order to perform reciprocal altruism. And the question is, in what order do these capacities develop over uh, over development, uh, over child development. And it seems like maybe at the beginning, children are not computing, will this person be helpful in the future towards me or not? But they have this inclination to, to, to um, just be, be helpful. Um, and the ability to discriminate between unhelpful and other uh, unhelpful individuals um, is, is maybe not yet operative in the given situation. But as you mentioned, the, the, the work by uh, Kylie Hamlin and, and Paul Bloom and uh, Karen Wynn, 
there's some indication that um, at around the same time, children actually do have the capacity to distinguish between helpful and unhelpful individuals. So, so it seems like maybe these capacities that are important for a reciprocal altruism uh, co-emerge and that young children are already able to engage in it. Now, now, when I was talking about this as, as potentially naked self-interest, ultimately, even though it seems like pure generosity, I, was, I wasn't really thinking about the kids at that age calculating uh, yeah. uh, you know, the uh, return on investment of this action, but I was thinking more in the grand evolutionary scheme of things. Right. Since biologists, by and large, are a very cynical group, they don't uh, propose that there's any such thing as true 100% self-sacrificing altruism. Uh, gee, you know, that would not be... Uh, an adaptive advantage, so that uh, most demonstrations of altruism have some genetic payoff up or down the line, whether you're helping, say, a member of your family who carries some of your your genetic endowment, you know, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or helping just a member of your species, which may give rise to cooperation that will assist you or your family members in, in, in surviving. So it's always looked at in terms of self-interest, isn't it? Right, and this must be true. This must be true. So you're a cynic, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, but it, it, it is um, important to distinguish uh, two levels. So in the, the terminology in biology is to talk about uh, proximate and ultimate causation. Mm -hmm. And so what you are talking about is the ultimate causation. So what does um, this mean in terms of evolutionary fitness? So to what extent will... Um, the genes be passed on and spread, etc. And the other is the pro proximate mechanism, which um, in, this, in this case is about the underlying psychological mechanisms like the cognitive abilities uh, or the motivations to act on behalf of others, etc. So, so I'm not making uh, the claim that the behaviors that we study are altruistic in this ultimate sense that um, this individual picking up a, a clothespin will have a, a, a lower selective advantage over others who, who will not pick up a clothespin, but that they have the cognitive and the motivational uh, processes that are involved in these uh, behaviors. So it must be the case that in the, in the long run, having these altruistic uh, tendencies in the sense of the proximate mechanisms do have an uh, ultimate beneficial selective advantage uh, consequence. So that, as you say, it is because uh, I have this helpful tendency, but I have it especially towards people uh, uh, that are part of my family. So, so um, I'm helping my own genes in some sense. Or there is this future um, payoff that comes via these reciprocal altruistic uh, interchanges. Or it is the case that I live in a social group and even though I will not get the return benefit from the individual I helped, um, I will be regarded as a helpful individual, a nice person, and therefore other people will also be nice towards me. Mm -hmm. And Or there's this social norm that if I don't help, I'll get punished for not being helpful, etc. So, so in the long run, there, there, there will be um, uh, an advantage to the individual having these altruistic uh, motivations over individuals who don't have that because of one of these factors or a combination thereof. So if I could, if I could cast this in, in, in somewhat different terms, we can be um, 
moderately uh, encouraged by the fact that, you know, young humans and, and also uh, some of our fellow primates seem to be innately generous and altruistic. But we shouldn't get too excited about that because ultimately uh, it's all driven by those selfish genes, you know, <laughs> who are <laughs> whose, whose slaves we are at all times, whether we know it or not. Yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> uh, that's so sad. Um <laughs> Have you uh, investigated or has anybody investigated um, in kids or, or again, in in chimps or other primates um, the opposite of altruism, that is cruelty, um, callousness, um, you know, bad behavior? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that dominated the the primatology uh, research. I mean, this was until uh, Franz Duval came along, mainly, who who observed that – that chimpanzees are not always uh, aggressive and um, com- competitive with each other, but also have um, these other inclinations to empathize with others and, and cooperate, cooperate with them. So, yeah, this, this um, was, was big in, in uh, primatology. And uh, also in psychology, it was the case that people focused on antisocial uh, behavior that led to actually the term pro-social behavior to look at the other side, all these good mm-hmm. things that, that uh, people do. So, yeah, absolutely, um, aggressive behavior and uh, competition, et, et cetera, uh, have been a major topic in, in both primatology and psychology. Now, we've been talking about experiments and situations where the kind of altruism is a very immediate and concrete form, assisting someone who's having a problem, uh, sharing, say, food uh, with others. Um, they're obviously more complicated and, and I would say maybe more abstract forms of altruism, um, maybe uh, resisting an impulse of mine because it, it, it breaks certain rules, even though no one's watching me and no one's going to immediately benefit, uh, mm. you know, sacrificing for the good of the group in, in some sort of general way, uh, again, where nobody's present and, and I'm not going to get any recognition for it, forgiving someone who's harmed me, you know, or making peace with someone where I seem to have no advantage in doing that. Um, are those things that, um, you know, in the view that's developing among you and your colleagues, are those things that, de- that, that sort of emerge later in, in human development? Yeah, we have to assume that. I mean, uh, children don't have the ability to think about abstract others at one and a half years of age. So it starts out with uh, understanding the effects of one's own behavior and other concrete people around us, and this can then be generalized maybe um, um, to these forms of interacting with people who are absent or thinking about how something will influence a group rather than a concrete uh, individual. But this is something that um, certainly develops later, and one has to assume that this develops out of these ex- uh, concrete um, experiences. So is the picture that's emerging from your work and the work of others um, that we're born with or, or very early develop, you know, sort of building blocks of moral behavior, but that uh, social interactions, civilization, you know, cultural forces then act on those, that basic palette of responses to, to create a fully, uh, fully adult moral individual or immoral individual for that matter? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, there's also you you call it moral uh, behaviors. I'm I'm not sure to what extent these uh, helpful behaviors are already immoral in the sense of um, an individual thinking about certain norms that apply. Uh, but yeah, so at, at the very least, yeah, these components um, seem to be 
there uh, very early on, and then the question is how um, individuals put them together over development. Does does experience make us better? Uh, does growing up and um, entering the adult world and, with all of its competitive forces and you know all of the social pressures does it tend to make us better or worse? Do we start out being perfect little innocent and um, and generous beings, and, and are we corrupted by by experience? You talk like Rousseau. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. Well, I think there's no answer to that in the end. I mean, we cannot say we're, we're, it's getting better or worse, but I think what happens over development is that um, children become more differentiated mm-hmm. about their uh, altruistic behaviors, as they become more differentiated about uh, other behaviors uh, as well. So, so um, the working hypothesis at the moment is that for us, that these children start out being not only selfish, but also altruistic under some circumstances. And um, they might not differentiate too well uh, between individuals uh, who should receive help or not. They cannot foresee the future consequences as well, etc. due to um, cognitive constraints, the inability to imagine um, these consequences, etc., but also maybe to, to social experience, because they're usually surrounded by people who are actually quite helpful and, and nice to them, right? And then when they maybe enter the peer group, or maybe um, then they uh, will experience that other people are not always that nice to them. So, so I think there, there's a mixture of these things that um, will lead children to be maybe a bit more strategic or differentiated about mm-hmm. when to be cooperative and when rather to be not cooperative. So what sort of questions are you pursuing right now? What, what, what's the next question you really want to answer? Uh, so what I'm interested in currently is after having established that these uh, altruistic behaviors seem to emerge very early in life to trace the development over, over time. So not only looking at toddlers, but uh, try to understand um, how this toddler altruism develops into its mature form that we find uh, in, in adults. Ah, well, I'm looking forward to hearing more from you in the future, because I want to know that too. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> Felix Varnikin is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. And if you don't believe his stories about helpful kids and chimps, well, we'll post links to some videos on our website, SeventhAvenueProject.com. This is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Now, here's another story about animal behavior that's reassuring in its own way. I learned of it a few years ago when talking to the neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, and it is, to this day, for me, maybe the most feel-good story about our primate kin that I've ever heard. And it's all the more heartening because it involves some of the meanest, nastiest primates of all. I give you the savanna baboon, male of the species, doing what he does best. This recording comes to us from behavioral ecologist Anne Ng. She studies baboons in Botswana. What you're hearing is a very agitated male who is taking out some aggression on a female, and he's chased her up a tree and onto the edge of a branch, and he's trying to shake her out of the tree by jumping up and down on the branch, and she's just screaming in terror. It was a really vicious attack. The baboons were 60 feet up in that tree, and if the male had shaken the female loose, she might have plunged to her death. 
And why the murderous rampage? Well, the guy was having a bad day. Some other dudes had gotten the better of him, and he was venting on the female. That's the way things work in Baboonville. The strong males beat up on the weak, and all of them take it out on the females and kids. It's an endless cycle of abuse, and it's enough to turn off even a hardened field biologist like Robert Sapolsky. They're just miserable, competitive, backstabbing, Machiavellian bastards. Backstabbing and backbiting. Here's a baboon bully's idea of a cool trick. You sneak up on a lower-ranking male, and you sink your big fangs right into the poor sucker's exposed rump. And then maybe you celebrate your achievement for good measure. <coughs> How charming. That, by the way, is called a wahoo, and it's the baboon equivalent of trash talk. Rough translation? Hey, everybody, look at me. Look at the incredibly laudable, impressive, intimidating thing that I'm doing. Robert Sapolsky knows a lot about baboonery. He can even speak their language. Wahoo! That's because he spent years on and off living with baboons in the Serengeti region of Kenya, in a national park known as the Maasai Mara Reserve. The folks around there um, call me Mr. Baboon, and it's clear that 28 years into it, I remain an enormous puzzle to them as to what the hell I'm doing hanging out with these baboons and why am I here? What he's doing there is studying the biology of stress, everything from the social factors that cause it like the aforementioned bullying, to its effects on brain chemistry and health. And it's that kind of top-to-bottom analysis that has made Sapolsky one of the world's experts on stress and won him a MacArthur Award and a boatload of other honors. And what better place for a guy in his line of research than the stress factory that is a baboon community? I don't actually like baboons all that much. I've studied them for almost 30 years. I love gorillas, um, but I study baboons because it's easier to do stress physiology on them. Not that Sapolsky dislikes all baboons. There's been baboons that I've just loved. My two favorite baboons ever were Benjamin and a female named Rachel, and my kids are named Benjamin and Rachel. So let's just call it a love-hate relationship. And after living with one troop of baboons for years, he named them the Forest Troop, Sapolsky got really close to them. They may have been thugs, but they were his thugs. These were my guys. So you can imagine how upset he was when his baboons started being killed off. This was in the early 1980s. A tourist lodge in the park was tossing tainted meat into a nearby garbage dump. The meat was infected with tuberculosis. Baboons were going to the dump, eating the meat, getting sick, and dying in droves. It was really unnecessary. The lodge could have disposed of the meat safely. But Sapolsky couldn't persuade them or corrupt Kenyan officials to do a damn thing. The baboons kept dying, and he nearly went apeshit himself. What I mostly did was just rage, um, and rage very effectively in terms of uh, eating out my stomach walls. So many baboons were killed by the TB that it pretty much decimated the troop. And it destroyed the social structure that Sapolsky had been so meticulously studying all those years. This was just incredibly devastating. It is one hell of a bad disease in a non-human primate. And, you know, these were my guys. So not surprisingly, as a result of that, I didn't want to go anywhere near that corner of the Serengeti for years afterward. Um, I started a new troop 30, 40 miles away and in the process lost a couple of years of work, but I could not set foot there. In 1986, Sapolsky packed up his research and moved on. He started over with a new troop of baboons in another part of the Serengeti. Years went by. 
Then he decided it was time for a sentimental journey. So along come the early 90s, you know, half a dozen years later, and the woman who was soon to be my wife um, was out there and decided, you know, time to you know, go show her back where I started my work there and where my troop was and go and find them and see them for the first time in years and years. So in 1993, Sapolsky and his wife-to-be, the neuropsychologist Lisa Scher, made their way back to the forest troop. And what they saw there caused Sapolsky's jaw to drop. What's flabbergasting, and you spend your time around baboons, and within five minutes you can see this was a different troop. Different is putting it mildly. Instead of the usual mayhem and beatdowns, the baboons were sitting quietly with each other and getting along. Instead of aggression, there was camaraderie. Instead of this, there was a lot of this. That friendly grunt is the opposite of a wahoo. It's a relaxed, come on over, socially interact with me vocalization. And you'll get the whole troop in a good mood where they're all sitting out there doing this grunting stuff and everybody's having a fine time. And that's exactly what was happening. The baboons were hanging out together, kicking back, grooming each other. Not only were the females grooming, which is normal, so were the males. This is no less berserk than being told, you know, your baboons fly or your baboons are photosynthetic, watching adult males grooming each other. This just does not happen in a normal baboon troop, and here are these guys doing that. Now, Sapolsky didn't rely on his initial startled impressions. He did a careful study, measured the levels of aggression in the forest troop, and compared those to the norms in other troops. And then you crunch your numbers and be official, hard-nosed number scientist, and this was a troop behaving real, real differently. Baboons, nasty, brutish baboons, were making love, not war. It was a stunning observation, and to explain what was really special about it, we're going to have to backtrack a bit. Remember that when Robert Sapolsky left the baboon troop, foodborne tuberculosis had killed off a part of the population. But it hadn't killed off just any baboons, only the ones who'd gone to the dump and eaten that contaminated meat. And to do so, they'd had to fight their way past other baboons guarding the dump. The effect was highly selective. What it required was you were willing each morning to give up on the, the morning's highlights of grooming and gossiping and socializing and go and fight your way into another big troop to get the leftovers. Those were the requirements. In other words, it was the tough guys, the red meat types, the alpha males, who muscled their way into the dump, fought over the spoils, and got sick. Um, there was a very simple rule. If you were one of the more aggressive males in the troop, and if you were one of the less socially connected ones, you died. And the mild-mannered guys, what Sapolsky calls the Alan Alda males, who stayed behind and socialized with the females, they lived. So the meek inherit the troop. And suddenly you get a troop with a social atmosphere that's real different. There's less aggression, and not just less aggression, but of a very distinctive type. They simply did not take it out on the innocent bystanders. And this turns into one big old commune by Savannah baboon standards. Okay, so you kill off the bullies and the troublemakers, leaving only nice guys, and things get kinder and gentler. Well, duh, that's what you'd expect, isn't it? Take out the violent types, and violence declines for a while. But this was more than a while. 
Recall that when Sapolsky made that return visit to his troop, it was 1993, a full seven years after the TB outbreak. What was extraordinary was by then, that 1986 survivor generation of adult males had died out. So much time had passed that the survivors, the good guy baboons left behind by the epidemic, they'd died of old age. This was an entirely new generation of males, still acting nice. These weren't even the sons of the original survivors, a bunch of Alan Alda juniors. Now, this was a completely new group of male baboons who'd migrated into the troop from outside. That's what male baboons do. When they reach adolescence, they leave home and go join a new troop. It may be nature's way of preventing inbreeding. These are guys who grew up in other troops in your traditional, miserable, competitive, hierarchical, violent, male-dominated societies and showed up as adolescents in this troop, and somehow these new guys were learning, we don't do stuff like that around here, and somehow this social atmosphere was being passed on. And by the definitions of every card-carrying anthropologist out there, this counts as a culture, a culture of less aggression. Culture is the term that scientists use for things we do that aren't coded in our genes, but are picked up and passed on by learning and imitation. Stuff we hand down from one generation to the next, not by biological inheritance, but by teaching and custom. And if the words culture and baboon sound strange together, well, that's because scientists hadn't seen anything quite like this before. Oh, they'd seen some isolated cultural traits in chimpanzees. But up to this point, most of those features of cultures have been about technology, tool construction and tool use, or styles of food acquisition, or styles of communication, a certain vocalization used by chimps here but not there. For instance, chimps in some areas have learned to use twigs to fish tasty termites out of their nests, and that's become something of a local custom, passed along in a monkey-see, monkey-do sort of way. But that's a far cry from what Sapolsky had discovered with his baboons. It doesn't form what Franz Duval has called a social culture. And what I think this baboon troop has is a social culture. Well, social culture relates to how individuals interact with each other. That's Franz Duval, the famous primatologist and author of books like Our Inner Ape. And so, for example, uh, in the human world, we have... Um, peaceful people, and we have people who are very agitated, and we have people who are very hierarchical uh, or class-divided, and other people are more egalitarian and democratic. And so we recognize in humans all these different social attitudes in different societies. And in primates, we tend to neglect that to some degree, uh, until, of course, this study came along and, and made it clear to us that uh, baboons are not always aggressive. They're not necessarily aggressive. It depends a bit on their history. And, and if the history is such that a peaceful, uh, let's say, attitude emerges, then it may be maintained. And this, dear listeners, is the mind blower. It was not that peace had broken out temporarily after the bad actors were killed. It was that that detente, that de-escalation, had taken root and lasted. A peaceful culture had taken hold and was being perpetuated through the generations. And that pretty much goes against everything we thought we knew. You pick up any anthropology textbook from like 1960 on, and you've got this chest-thumping, you know, hairy, pelt-covered males with the big canines pictures of baboons. Baboons are the textbook example of a stratified, hierarchical society with male dominance, with conflict settled, with aggression, and this is what they're like. 
A lot of scientists had believed that violence in baboons was innate, predetermined, and inescapable. And maybe not just in baboons. Parentheses. Hey, we grew up on the savanna also as a species. Maybe that's what we were like. Maybe this is what's in our nature. That notion has a long history in science and popular culture. Remember those gang-banging ape men in Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey? Well, supposedly that's who we were and who we still are: bloody-minded then and bloody-minded now. In the 60s,、uh, we had、uh, Conrad Lorenz and Robert Ardrey who depicted us as killer apes. We have an aggressive instinct, and we will always be aggressive. Franz Deval, referring to the animal behaviorist Conrad Lorenz and the author Robert Ardrey, both popularizers of the idea that human aggression is part of our inheritance and inevitable. But Robert Sapolsky says his evidence doesn't support that kind of pessimism. All it took was one damn generation, and you invented a baboon troop that violates everything in those textbooks. And essentially, the punchline winds up being: if you could take some non-human primate species with tails and no language and anything else, and they've just overturned those textbooks and shown in a generation they can come up with a much, much more peaceful society, we don't have a damn leg to stand on saying that there are inevitabilities of human social systems. The wonderful thing that he shows in his inevitable way is the plasticity of primate conduct and behavior. The extent to which、uh, any kind of notion of a killer ape, predetermined to focus on war and conflict, is simply、uh, just non-scientific or inappropriate. That is not a biologist. It's Gideon Rose, editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, and he too sees lessons for human beings in Sapolsky's work. History is ours to be made by us, and that if we can figure out the conditions under which、uh, we can、uh, live in peace, then it is possible, and that we are not prisoners of our genes and evolutionary background. Rose published an article by Robert Sapolsky in Foreign Affairs describing his baboon findings. It's entitled "A Natural History of Peace." It may be surprising to find an article by a field biologist in a venerable foreign policy journal, but on closer inspection, it makes sense. There's a long tradition of trying to understand not just social relations but international relations in particular through analogies to the state of nature, to the wild,、uh, because basically the lack of a hierarchical structure in the international sphere, the lack of a hierarchy and the presence of anarchy,、uh, no power above the nations involved, means that people have always tried to figure out other parallels. Uh, to that, and they've gone back to a mythical state of nature in which people supposedly were operating outside governments、uh, to try to figure out what is possible and what to do in those circumstances. And right, and how does this add to that picture? Well, it adds to that picture because basically what it says is that cooperation can evolve given the right conditions. It is possible for groups that would otherwise be at each other's throats to live peacefully with each other and possibly even with. Other groups, and that's a huge insight. It means that the future can be different from the past, and that we're not destined for conflict. Never mind that the so-called state of nature was largely a product of the imagination, as Gideon Rose says. And leave aside that we aren't descended from baboons, as Robert Sapolsky takes pains to point out. The fact is, we just can't resist a good animal story. We look to apes and monkeys and pre-human ancestors for signs of our own potential or limitations. And for a long time, the message was fatalistic and defeatist.
Beneath our civilized veneer, we were brutes, condemned to an endless cycle of self-inflicted woe. Our wars, our genocides, all that so-called inhumanity, well, that was really human. For better or worse, stories matter. And now along comes Sapolsky's Live and Let Live Baboons, offering some narrative balance and a little ammunition for the optimists. If baboons, baboons for goodness sake, can give peace a chance, maybe we can too. Oh, there will be peace in the valley for me. One day there will be peace in the valley for me. No more trouble. There will be, there will be peace in the valley. Oh, you know the bear will be gentle. You know the wolves gonna be so tame. With a lamb, oh yes, I know the host from the wild will be led by a little child, and I'll be changed from this creature. Now, hold on to that hopeful note, because I've got an update to this story, and it's not a happy one. When I last talked to Robert Sapolsky, he was looking forward to many more years of research on his peaceful baboons. He had a lot of questions he wanted to answer. For instance, with less bullying going on, how were the lower echelon baboons, the traditional scapegoats and punching bags, doing? And the measures I've got so far are mostly having to do with the stress hormones is you don't pay anywhere near as much of a price of being low-ranking. These wind up simply being healthier guys. And then there was the biggest mystery of all. The critical question is, how do these guys show up freshman year in this troop and take on the behavioral style of this troop? He'd already ruled out heredity. It's not genetic because the males taking on this cultural style grew up someplace else. They're not from this troop. Okay, how about the possibility of self-selection? Maybe the sociable baboon troop simply attracted a gentler breed of male. You know, you're a baboon, you've grown up elsewhere, and you're now picking your adult troop, and guys check out a couple of troops, and maybe there was self-selection. I think of that always as the, well, who would choose to go to Reed College or Oberlin College model? It's not random. Um, maybe it was not random here. So you look at the behavior of these new guys in their first couple of months, and they're just as jerky and aggressive as new guys in any other troop. It's not self-selection. Instead, Sapolsky thought another process might be at work, one where females played the role of peacekeeper. The males there are nice guys, so you're not a female who's just miserable and stressed all the time. As a result of being more relaxed, you're willing to take more of a chance reaching out socially to some new unknown guy, 
And in this way that I think of as this kind of, you know, default model, if we had a world without misery and war, we would all, you know, hold hands and sing folk songs. In some sort of default model, you're some jerky adolescent male baboon, and you're in a place where you're being treated nicely, and within about six months or so, you've relaxed a whole lot. And I think that's what's going on. Sapolsky was keen to verify that hunch, and he was also scared stiff he might never get the chance. I love this troupe as a whole. And one thing I fret about just neurotically is, oh my God, what would do in this culture? Are there things that would wipe out this culture? He was especially worried that an influx of warlike males might shatter the truce and violence might ratchet up again. You get the jerk adolescent males show up and typically one shows up once every six months or so. And these guys can absorb them. They can assimilate them. What if two or three of them showed up at once? Or what if some big, strapping, aggressive adult male who just lost out on a major promotion in his other troop and decided it's time to do a lateral transfer shows up? And what could upend this whole system, throwing a wolf in among the sheep there? And that's distinctly possible. So I, I fret about that all the time. Well, I emailed Robert Sapolsky recently to see what had become of the forest troop, and he reported back that something had caused the group to disintegrate. It wasn't baboons, it was human beings. In recent years, that tourist lodge, the one that triggered this whole accidental experiment in animal culture in the first place, had expanded, and so had its dump. There were now great new opportunities for scavenging, and the forest troop had pretty much disbanded, and now just hung around the lodge like rats around a dumpster. They weren't being killed off by TB anymore. The tubercular meat was long gone, but the social structure was in tatters. And that was the last straw for Robert Sapolsky. He says he's given up baboon work once and for all. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. Visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.